1: bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada podcast. All right, we got a pretty big episode actually. There's been a lot going on around Canada since since my last episode. So kicking things off in Alberta, this is a pretty tragic story. Uh, about a month ago, two people in Banff National Park were attacked and killed by a grizzly bear in the Red Deer River Valley, west of the Yaha Tinda Ranch in Banff National Park. The, it's so a very, very remote area of Banff National Park. The couple had hiked back in uh, with their dog. Their dog was also killed. Parks Canada got a uh, GPS uh, message from a, uh, like a spot or a Garmin device at 8 p.m. at nighttime, uh, that there was an attack, that it was serious. They were not able to fly in and crews arrived by foot at 1, uh, at 1 a.m. in the morning, found both of the deceased uh, individuals and the bear was still there, apparently charged the uh the rescuers they ended up killing the bear reports of that i've read have said that this was a bear that was fairly old i think uh it was she was in her 20s if i remember right uh, and not in good fitness not not a healthy bear going into the winter i'd also read that this bear potentially had been involved in a confrontation with hikers in the uh, next valley over from the red deer river valley uh if i I got my geography right in the panther river uh which is the drainage i believe where uh parks canada has the um the bison uh pen where where they originally brought the bison in so this bear was apparently not a banff national park bear uh not tagged not known to uh parks biologists it just wandered into the national park i would assume if it's an unhealthy bear um struggling to fatten up before winter it was probably covering a uh, tremendous tremendous area of landscape traveling trying to find high value uh food fat dead carcasses whatever years and years ago i had read so so partly what i've read too in this one is the couple was inside their tent um, when the bear attacked, so that most likely compounds the difficulty of the situation uh, for people being attacked, right? You can just, <clears throat> just imagine being in a little a little backpacking tent. Yeah. So years and years ago, I recall reading uh, Stephen Herrero's book on causes and avoidance of bear attacks, I, be- I believe was the title of it. And he talked about from his research two categories of grizzly attacks in North America that he he had kind of like parsed out from from the dat from the data. One of them was if if you are confronted by a grizzly bear that charges and attacks in a daytime situation, that the data had showed that the the strategy of playing dead uh, was your best chance of survival with a grizzly bear. Because as I recall, most of the time, the daytime confrontations are um, unexpected, people bumping in, startling each other, bears protecting a kill, bears protecting cubs, that sort of thing. And it's a defensive action of the bear uh, to rush at you, take you down. Um, bite, 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 shake, shake, maul, slam you down, and then run away. If you read a lot of bear attack uh, incident reports, that's that's very common. Uh, is is it's just like bang, it happens. The person is like bit, 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 um, sh- shook like a rot, rag doll uh, is a common uh, analogy I've heard uh, victims, uh, you know, describe the event. And then and then just as soon as it happens is the bear's gone and it's over so dr herrero was saying that the whole thing is is the bear wants to sort of like get the first punch in and take you down disable you make sure you're down and then get away get away with its cubs or or or, or it leaves whatever the situation is so if you fight or 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 kick back or resist, the bear continues to see that as being a threat. And so it continues the attack, uh, which then can lead to um, to a fatal attack. So the playing dead in the daytime situation was um, was was sort of the prevailing uh, advice. Then Dr. Herrero talked about a number of cases uh, in There were some famous cases uh, in the Yellowstone area that happened on successive nights, uh, almost like a movie, where a grizzly bear was attacking people at nighttime in their tents, um, going in, grabbing people that were partially still in sleeping bags, dragging them off, killing them, and then partially consuming them. Dr. Herrero, I recall, remember saying that if you are in a tent, and a grizzly bear at nighttime is coming in. It's coming in to kill you and you need to do everything to fight for your life. Playing dead is not going to work in that situation because the bear wants to kill you for food. Generally bears, grizzly bears, are not overly active at nighttime. They're supposed to do a lot of sleeping, just travel roads, that sort of thing. Anyways, um, Gosh, horrible, horrible story. Alberta has had a very bad run of very serious bear attacks, fatal attacks, the last couple of years. Uh, don't know what the answer is, but, uh, one of the things that has reared its head in this discussion in Banff is the debate about carrying firearms for personal protection in the national parks. So I did a bit of research on this and 15 years ago, this topic came up with Parks Canada and officials were reviewing this primarily for the Arctic, the national parks in the Arctic and allowing people that are going up there into the remote Arctic areas, permits to carry firearms because of the polar bears. So apparently that is in place now, that policy with Parks Canada, but not in the south where folks are dealing with grizzly bears. Pretty contentious uh issue. I am all for wilderness carry of a sidearm like with the stuff that I do like hunting in the mountains, grizzly bears around, you know, you're trying to clean a deer or an elk or you know, some places there's there's high densities of bears and you're likely to, you know, bump into one when when you're hunting. Which is not really an option anymore. Wilderness carry. I don't know where that stands just because of the whole handgun ban thing now, whether or not they're ever going to issue wilderness carries. Uh, I can't go buy a handgun now. Nobody can sell me one, can't transfer one. So it's kind of, that's a whole different story. But in the national parks, like, like I get it, uh, you're in these remote areas at this time of the year, grizzly bears, could potentially and obviously were in this case as lethal as a polar bear in in the arctic however gosh i read all these stories all year long about these crazy things that tourists do in the national parks whether they're in canada or in yellowstone in the united states just like really bizarre stuff, like walking up to animals, taking selfies, you know, trying to get on the back of the Buffalo, uh, all these kinds of things. In fact, I think on Instagram, isn't there that account that's called, uh, um, the tourists of Yellowstone. And it's just all these videos that other people take of just the, the mental things that people do in these national parks. And I'm like, man, I don't know if that's a great idea, Um, if that's the culture of a portion of the people that go to the national parks, that they should also have the right to carry a firearm. Um, You know, I can just see all kinds of crazy stuff of shooting at animals and trying to shoot a squirrel and shooting signs and shooting in tents and outhouses and all this kind of crazy stuff. So I don't know. You know, those people would be able to go into the wilderness areas outside the national park, but my thoughts are, is they're mostly packing into the national parks, the responsible people that would know how to carry and use a sidearm for, um, bear protection are going to be people like hunters, trappers, ranchers, um, guide outfitters, guides, you know, those sorts of well-experienced people in this realm and uh, hopefully one day we'll be able to protect ourselves in the backcountry that way as well so now staying in alberta on the topic of human wildlife conflict so just coming on the heels of this bear attack in alberta was the retirement of the Alberta government's only human wildlife conflict specialist. Uh, He retired actually last spring and there were stories in the news from the fellow that retired sort of calling on the government to like, Hey, fill my position. This was an important uh work that was being done uh the province of alberta only had one large carnivore conflict biologist and that person primarily dealt with grizzly bears uh kind of the proactive stuff of like you know working with towns and communities on on preventing uh you know attraction to garbage fruit trees uh, private property uh, domestic livestock issues all that kind of stuff Just sort of proactively working on that education front and and that sort of thing. So uh so since since the retirement last year this position has not been filled. I've read some stories where folks including the former um biologist are calling on the Alberta government to to fill this position. So I don't know whether or not the province is planning to fill the position but just can't find somebody cuz it's hard to find people nowadays for some jobs or they've decided not to fill it and maybe they're going with some kind of an external um, external to government like community programs or something like in british columbia we had wild safe bc uh, bear safe uh, communities that sort of thing and coordinators i'll maybe try to find out a little bit more of that from my good friend matt Besco, who's always on the podcasts all right so staying in Alberta lots of Alberta stories but we'll we'll get we'll get over to the East Coast here in a minute so an announcement by Parks Canada about a week ago that Parks Canada has entered into uh, agreements with two First Nations to allow hunting in Jasper National Park in Alberta um, Alberta's stony Nakoda Nation and British Columbia's sim Nation uh, were both the signatures to this agreement this year. The uh, agreement is for uh, six deer, four elk, and two chief sheep (mountain sheep) uh, that will come be hunted and come out of Jasper National Park to be followed by a community feast and a celebration uh, on the. October 28th, so I'm recording this on the 26th so I would assume maybe some of these animals have already been harvested. The last time there was actually an Indigenous hunt in Jasper National Park was way back in 2017. Uh, I can't remember how many animals were taken, I don't think that many, it's just a couple of elk. Uh, There are agreements in other places in Canada for national parks and parks reserves uh, that allow Indigenous harvesting in them, uh, which was news to me. However, this news is not sitting well with everyone in the country. Uh, it's a national park. Non-indigenous people are not allowed to hunt there. The auspices of national parks was to remove human impacts to wildlife uh, and the natural ecosystem. Mining, logging. Uh, hunting, however you can fish in national parks, which is kind of weird. And personally, my philosophy is, is that recreation is actually an industrial use of the land base. So in my view, I've always viewed national parks as being an industrial land use and it's uh, it's an economic engine to maximize millions and millions of people going into the national parks. They run over animals, they kill them, there's conflict. You know, there's all sorts of things. So it's not truly, uh, you know, a national park is not truly keeping humans away from harming wildlife and just allowing wildlife to do their thing. So anyways, this idea of uh, sanctioned indigenous hunts is not, like I said, not sitting well. Uh, The Wild Sheep Society of Alberta, who I absolutely love for all the work that they're doing had penned and released a letter to the federal government uh, opposing uh, hunting in the national parks, basically saying that's our understanding of a national park, as it is a place on the Canadian landscape where animals are supposed to not be hunted. They can just go about doing their thing if they leave the national parks. Fair for hunters to take them. One of the roles that I've often seen about national parks or preserves is that they are reservoirs for genetics and old age animals that sometimes leave, do breeding outside the national parks and are occasionally taken by by hunters as well. So uh, the Wild Sheep Society of Alberta was, was saying, no, this doesn't align with our values. And uh, so they, they penned that letter Uh, good on them to address an issue like this. It's not directly related to the hunting of, you know, their membership and stuff, but it's a conservation issue in their perspective of what should or shouldn't happen to wildlife in a national park. I've read some of the, um, the discussions on social media that have flowed underneath of the uh, Wild Sheep Society of Alberta's um, press release. And within the hunting community, that in itself has not sat well with some people. Uh, some people actually think that we should be advocating that everybody should have an opportunity to hunt in the national parks. So uh, they were a little miffed that the Wild Sheep Society stated that they believed that there should be no hunting in the national parks which would include Canada's indigenous people. So uh hot debate going on there on this one. Now, again, st- still talking Alberta here. Lots going on in Alberta. Another unfortunate story that's coming on the heels of this announcement of the First Nations hunt in Jasper National Park, I don't want you to think there's a correlation here but just about a week and a half ago um, two big uh, bighorn rams were found near jasper lake Uh, they had been killed and their heads removed so obviously somebody wanted the horns and the skull uh, attached and they just removed the head and left the carcass of these two mature rams there had been found no leads, no nothing that I know of. Uh, Park's warden service is asking for any information. If you go just do some searches or whatever, you'll find numbers that you can call. They're just hoping that, you know, someone had a dash cam, you know, anything saw something like to give them uh, a lead. I have not seen a story since that said there's any leads uh, in this investigation. It is unfortunate. I I'm personally of the opinion that these rams and the indigenous harvest things are completely unrelated. Uh, Even though the First Nations harvest uh, for this year allowed two, two sheep, it just doesn't seem to fit in the spirit of what was being talked about for the hunt and the celebration feast and stuff for these sheep to be related to that. Somebody obviously poached. These rams and that's the way the reports are being written up, the news stories that these rams were poached um, simply for uh, trophy skull and horns uh, would be my my deduction here. One of the reasons I feel strongly about that that's most likely what it what it was is I live not too far from the gates of Kootenai National Park uh, just north of me. Uh, you hit the community of radium uh, on the west slope of the Rocky Mountains and you wind your way up into Kootenay National Park. You go over the Continental Divide and then you drop over into Banff National National Park and go north to Jasper, Lake Louise, um, you know it's all all that part of the world. So in Kootenay National Park, there's a lot of traffic coming out of Alberta to the recreational areas in the Shuswap and in the Windermere, Invermere area. So highly used highway bighorn sheep are hit a lot in Kootenai National Park. And I've heard stories from credible sources and enforcement people in the National Park that sometimes there are reports of a big ram that is hit in Kootenay National Park and by the time wardens get out there either the whole entire animal is gone or his head's gone so there is some kind of a thing going on in the mountain national parks of Jasper Kootenay and maybe Banff as well where some kind of a operation is going on poaching rams for their, for their skulls uh, and horns. Somebody's probably trying to sell them as trophies on the black market, yada, 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 that sort of thing, right? Um, anyways, kind of a, it, it's an, a super unfortunate uh, story uh, to, to hear about this. I mean, the whole idea of on the eve of Halloween of, you know, the headless ghost kind of thing or the headless rider or whatever kind of, yeah, like that's, that's kind of cool uh you know whatever the uh, the headless horseman but you know the story of the headless rams is is definitely not uh in the spirit of halloween nor is it kind of in the spirit of i think what anybody uh wants to hear about but it's a new story it's happened it's an issue and i believe there's something uh relatively sinister going on in the mountain national parks of people taking rams for their trophy skulls and it's probably connected to money in some way shape or form in that they're being sold to buyers to have these big ram skulls in their dens or on their walls or whatever they do with them unfortunate unfortunate okay so still staying in jasper national park um jasper national park the federal government allocated i believe a couple years ago it was like 25 million dollars or something like that to uh, construct a uh, caribou maternal penning uh, facility to uh, raise wild caribou in a captive pen setting to rear calves uh, and then release them back into jasper national park to try to repopulate The mountain caribou that have been extirpated from from Jasper National Park. So that is underway. The construction of that facility now, 65 hectares, uh, close to the Tonquin Valley. There, that facility has to be, uh, this is probably by the environmental assessment certificate, Parks Canada has to be done by January of 2025 so this facility will have six full-time workers uh year-round they'll be taking care of a planned uh 40 female caribou and eight male caribou apparently they're going to be separated outside the breeding season by probably like a, a split pasture fence uh the caribou will breed uh cows will be impregnated they'll have their calves the following spring And then this is a little different than the facility that's in Northern BC that uh, they're trying to replenish the Clanziza herd is these calves are going to stay in this facility for a year. Uh, until they're about a year and a half old then they're going to be flowing into the Tonquin Valley and released into the wild so as I understand the maternal penning project in the Clinziza area of northeastern BC is they are capturing caribou in the fall of the year early-ish you know kind of winter then they're no, hang on. I think they're capturing them in the springtime. I have to ask Dr. Lamb about that. I'm just trying to think back to uh, uh, Clayton's Instagram post when he was up there capturing caribou and I think it was in the late spring. So then they test them to see if the caribou's pregnant. If they are, they move her into the pen. She calves. They rear the calf um, over the spring and the summer and then and then they're released. So this facility in Jasper is going to keep them a lot longer. So that'll be interesting because then the um, the caribou calves will be bigger, um, stronger. You know, maybe able to out, outrun or or avoid predators better uh, when when they're released. Now, like the. Maternal Penning Project that is in Northeastern BC um, that is being led by uh, the West Moberly and Soltol First Nations. The one in Jasper National Park is also a collaborative effort between the Mountain Cree and Kelly Lake Cree Nations, uh, who will be involved in the management and rearing of these uh, caribou and the future conservation of the herd. So. Kind of interesting, uh, different approach. It'd be uh, cool to follow this story along over the years to see how these caribou calves do and how efficient uh, this system is at repopulating extirpated herds or bolstering up uh, struggling uh, endangered caribou herds. Now, switching over to horses in Alberta. There's about fourteen hundred feral horses in Alberta's foothills. uh they've been there for eons. Um, Escape domestic animals uh they have been on the Alberta landscape for a long time. The Alberta government has been has a has had a strategy for managing them that goes all the way back to the nineteen fifties, including culling the animals. Um, they've trapped them, relocated them, sold them all the controversy about these horses being bought in auctions and then taken to the, um, uh, the horse meat markets it's, it's been a very controversial thing in Alberta, uh, as it has across the U S West as well, what to do with these escaped wild horses and the mustangs actually have designations in the U.S. If they're inside certain areas, they're actually like wild mustangs, and they have a different classification than escaped feral horses. British Columbia has a, an escaped feral horse herd in the Chilcotin Central Interior area. Now, apparently, there's been like public surveys and you know the sorts of things done, and there's this overwhelming. Uh, empathy among Albertans to ensure that these wild horses remain on the landscape, that they're treated humanely, uh, that the natural ecosystems are maintained, that they coexist with wildlife, livestock, forestry, and other land uses. And Albertans seem to be cool with the idea as long as they're in balance with everything else that's else, that's out there. So The government has a management strategy, which is basically saying they wanna maintain a stable horse population. Uh, If there's more than 1,119 wild horses, of which there is now, uh, the population is deemed to be unfavorable. It's it's heading in the wrong direction. If the population gets near 1,760, That's the threshold where the province is going to consider management measures being capture, adoption, contraception, or quote unquote, other populate other programs to reduce or maintain the population. In other words, lethal removal, in my opinion, that's what that means. So yeah, crazy, eh? Um, These wild horse stories, um, All over North America really strike a chord in in people not like Canada geese as soon as you come up with well there's too many Canada geese somewhere and people want to get rid of them so Uh, horses people love them now back to bears in Alberta so this fall, uh, there was a mother black bear killed uh, outside of Cochrane on the highway uh, leading to the orphaning of its two cubs. Alberta Fish and Wildlife Service um, found the cubs, did an assessment and determined that the cubs um, did not need to go to the rehabilitation facility in Alberta and that they were old enough to look after themselves. and. Their instincts to den up this this winter were apparently, you know, good because of their age. And the decision was made not to capture them, to leave them. So the director of the um, bear Rehabilitation Center in Alberta was not happy uh, with this. And they're looking for... Uh, calling on the government to make changes to its policy so that cubs uh, are given to them uh, to to rehabilitate in the facility. One of the stories I read on this, uh, the rehabilitation facility um, spokesperson said that female black bears will lactate up to 17 months, meaning that their cubs are with them at least for two winters and it's not fair to have an animal that is relying on its mother for most of its sustenance to all of a sudden be forced to forage on its own. Uh, The Alberta government said it doesn't plan to change its policy, which was finalized back in 2018, and the policy states that black bear cubs must be less than a year old for rehabilitation and can only be taken into rehabilitation facilities between January and July of each year interesting interesting so you know the statement about the cubs the female the mom lactating for basically like almost two years the cubs nursing for two years saying it's unfair that if the mother's killed to force those cubs to like change and go on their own you know i think nature has accounted for this because mother bears die of natural causes as well and if the cubs are very small, unable to look after themselves and that happens to the mother, nature has a plan for those cubs and it's that they're not going to survive. They're going to feed something else. That's the way of nature. Nature's metal. When these cubs get to be close to two years old or into their second season, maybe a second denning with their mom, something happens to her naturally. I'm assuming that mother nature has built mechanisms into these bears that are like, "Kate, mom's gone, no milk, eat what she's taught you to eat. Grass, grubs, dig stuff up, rip roots apart. Um, use your nose, find dead stuff, get on with it. You know how to do this. This is genetically programmed into the being of a black bear. They're going to know what to do. Those instincts are going to kick in, in their second year. And then nature is saying, okay, instinct and genetic coding is now kicking in. And these bears have a chance of making it, but they're going to have to prove themselves to nature that they have the fighting instinct to survive on their own because their mother has died. And that is, I think part of what we we might want to call the brutality of nature, but I also sort of see it as the, as the mechanisms of nature to ensure that life goes on, that cubs are, able to carry on on their own. If this happens naturally, they have it within them. I'm to understand that if a, uh, at this time of the year in the fall, uh, a white tail fawn that was born in the springtime, if it's mother's killed like now, it, it can survive like it's good. Um, it'll herd up with other deer, uh, its body's big enough. It knows what to do and it, it can be fine. Like at, whatever that is, nine, 10 months of age. So, you know, I think there's a number of these mechanisms and I definitely, I think I'll sort of side uh, with Alberta government on this one and not the rehabilitation facility that I think we need to do more of non-critical species like black bears in letting mother nature take its course with those cubs, uh, be it that the mother is killed accidentally by humans uh, or natural we got to let nature run its course as much as we can and stop tinkering with these animals lies all right switching provinces so ontario and nova scotia almost back to back uh, released findings that both provinces have found invasive crayfish in their water systems nova scotia has found the red swamp crayfish which is native to the southern united states and ontario has found the marbled crayfish in its waterways it's baffling biologists how they got there a few things i've read is apparently in ontario the marbled crayfish uh they think it's introduction into the environment relates back to the fact that back in 1995 you could buy these things from aquariums and they most likely some somebody tossed them into a natural waterway somewhere um kids dumped them mother got tired of looking after the bowl full of crayfish or whatever and chucked them out now like any invasive species uh, these crayfish can cause all types of problems Um, they can have parasites they compete for space and food uh, they can eat fish eggs they can their extensive burrowing can disrupt um, the ecosystem on bottoms of lakes they can uh, overpopulate so bad they can clog up waterways and drains and all, all this kind of stuff. Uh, the only benefit is, is <laughs> crayfish are tasty. Um, you can load up on them, eat the invasives, uh, the, that, that cool bumper sticker. Now, this this is just, one of the reasons I wanted to cover this story uh, is this is kind of, it's a conservation story, but this just blows me away about the marbled crayfish in Ontario. So These things can reproduce through asexual reproduction. So a single marbled crayfish can establish massive populations with exponential explosive growth from a single female because that single female can reproduce on her own without a male being around. And she can have hundreds of offspring every year. And these offspring are females. And so then they asexually reproduce. It almost sounds like a science fiction horror movie. Uh, and, and it's just crazy. So I think all of these marbled crayfish in Ontario, um, actually come back to a single animal that's self replicating, self cloning, and it may have actually been, uh, a single crayfish that started this whole problem with uh, the mar- marbled crayfish in Ontario. So that I thought was kind of crazy. One of the things I thought it was crazy is every time I learn about an invasive species somewhere, it's they've got some sort of these supernatural powers <laughs> of somehow uh, leaving their, their home environments and coming into an introduced environment where they're just like, Super advantage uh, over the native species. I know the whole issue with Atlantic salmon being farmed in the Pacific Ocean. Atlantic salmon compete with more species of fish in the Atlantic Ocean, so they're more aggressive, they're bigger, they can outcompete other fish. Pacific salmon don't have as many species to deal with, and so the Atlantic salmon can outcompete Pacific salmon. Just stuff like that. The invasive wild pig, uh, you know, just, yeah, just stuff almost like, uh, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg invented these things, you know, for the movies or whatever, but they're actually real with these real crazy powers. So anyways, so on on a side note, um, one of the stories was calling um, these crawdads, and I remember being in Texas down there on the Gulf Coast with Texas folks, and I said that, and got, got sharply corrected. Unless you know differently, crawdads is not the proper way that they're referred to in the south of the United States, where they're highly abundant. They're either crayfish or crawfish. In fact, I even asked uh, Doctor Lee Foot, who of course originally is from the U.S. South, and he said. They call them crawfish. But I recall the term crawdads is not how they're referred to in the south of the US. So maybe they are. I don't know. I just remember at the restaurant there in Houston, Texas, it was like there were a few people like they're not crawdads. the hell are you calling them that for? Smart up. Jumping over to Nova Scotia. Uh, I think I'd covered this story last year where the uh, municipality of Nova Scotia uh, needed to control its deer population in the urban environments and they sanctioned a, a cull. So that cull is again taking place uh, between, should be going on now mid-October, it's going to run through December. Uh, so it's the third time, the third year this hunt has taken place in the town of Truro. The first hunt back in January, February of 2022, they took 14 deer. The second hunt that was done in November, December of 2022 uh, was 41 deer. And then uh, this year, I think they're looking to take more. The cool, cool part about this is the town of Truro is partnering with Feed Nova Scotia, And all of the meat that's harvested from these animals is going to be donated to families in need through the food bank system throughout the province of Nova Scotia. And that's the way it should be, in my opinion, and Canada geese should be on that list as well, clear across this country. There is no reason to not be dealing with these urban geese problems and not packaging that meat up and running it through the food bank systems. Saskatchewan. So I covered this story a while back uh, about an amendment to Saskatchewan's Trespass to Property Act that requires hunters to get permission from landowners before going on their property. That was not always the case in Saskatchewan with private land, but it is now and it's becoming a bit of an issue in Saskatchewan. And the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation is working very hard to try to connect hunters with landowners to to confirm this permission to hunt on the lands. Uh, It's difficult. It's difficult for hunters to to find who the landowners are. One person in Saskatchewan that gave me some intel on this said that the the changeover from cell phones from the old phone books is part of the issue here it's hard to get a hold of landowners because the the as i was told the phone books are getting smaller so the old the days of going to the phone book and looking up and the address and stuff and getting a landowner and giving them a call is uh technology is making that go by the wayside so it's harder to find and get a hold of the landowners one because of that also um the this land access needing permission cwd uh is also causing uh i guess a bit of a drop in deer tag sales uh in the province so there's kind of a bunch of things coming about in saskatchewan that's that's making hunting difficult for for folks. Um, now, the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation is working with uh, the government and the non-government program to find and develop programs that are going to better connect hunters with landowners, uh, whether that's going to be a signage system or the various apps like iHunter or OnX or a government system that's going to allow you to go on and click on a property and get the contact information. Those sorts of things. Um, But the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation like is not against this change. The Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation actually owns uh, quite a bit of land in Alberta and they manage it for wildlife populations and uh, conservation measures. And they themselves in managing these land areas want to be able to control hunting to actually have some areas that don't have hunting. So they can allow wildlife populations to grow or stabilize or whatever. So the fact that as a landowner themselves, the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation, they're sort of in favor of the fact that people have to contact them to get access to SWF lands in that they're able to then talk to the hunters and sort of make sure that they're not going to properties where they might be on a rotational no hunting system or, or whatever. So kind of, that's kind of cool, but it is kind of a consternation for hunters in, in trying to track down folks to get access and, and Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation is trying to close that gap. If you got any ideas, I would say the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation is probably open to uh, hearing your, hearing your ideas on, on how to solve this problem. The, message that i have got from folks from alberta saskatchewan manitoba southern ontario Uh, the good old-fashioned politely going up and knocking on a door and introducing yourself is the best way even in this day and age of technology to get permission to hunt on the agriculture or the private lands of the prairie region of canada so that and i've heard some great success stories just a couple of days ago and uh in alberta a person said they went to like half a dozen places just saw some geese knocked on some doors you bet come on in um you can go go hunt they only had one property that said no uh, we don't want hunters on we don't allow anybody on but other than that the success rate was very good of just knocking on doors so that was cool um you know i that just tells me that The 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 private land community, the farm community, the agriculture community of our Prairie Region of Canada are still just down to earth, good old fashioned down to earth people. And if you just talk to them uh, at the right time and the right way, um, there's a history there that goes back hundreds of years of hunters being on these private parcels of land, respect the land, communicate, um, you know, those sorts of things it's not so bad might be a little scary for the new generation uh going up and knocking on doors they want to do everything by the cell phone so might be time to teach the younger folks if you're a little gray-haired listen to this podcast uh teach the younger folks on the etiquette of knocking on a farm door uh, and talking to them about hunting access and introducing yourself do's and don'ts uh, i think that'd be a pretty cool mentorship program actually all right, uh, jumping over to British Columbia. So, a few episodes ago, I was talking about the spotted owl in a particular region of southeastern British Columbia, old growth dependent owl that is endangered. It's only known that there is one wild owl left on the coast of BC, uh, a female. They've been rearing uh males in a captive facility in the lower mainland area of British Columbia they released some there earlier this spring and i think two were killed one was injured and managed to be relocated and captured and taken back to the facility and so this lone spotted owl was still by herself out there there was logging in and around in the valley where this owl was known to occur the federal minister of the environment had put in a couple of emergency request orders to the federal cabinet ministers to approve the invoking of the habitat protection section of the species, the federal species at risk act, which would then allow the federal government's mandate of protecting endangered species to trump provincial laws of resource extraction and endangered um, wildlife habitat. And the spotted owl was one that the federal minister put through the request order. Well, just about a week and a half ago, the cabinet ministers came back and clearly rejected their own minister's call for the invoking of the Habitat Protection Clause of the Federal Species at Risk Act. So folks are basically saying that that is now cast a significant doubt on the survival of the spotted owl in coastal British Columbia because our federal cabinet ministers refused to protect that species at risk with the power of the federal legislation. I have covered so many stories about the failure of Canada's Species at Risk Act. It has done some good stuff. Uh, I acknowledge that. I talked a couple episodes ago about the sage grouse, greater sage grouse habitat protection in um, Saskatchewan and southern Alberta. Good stuff. Uh, But it has certainly failed a number of species, especially here in the West. Mountain caribou, killer of the southern resident killer whales. Um, the interior Fraser steelhead populations, several of the um, Pacific salmon steelhead runs, all the same story. They, the federal government refuses to invoke the power of the Species at Risk Act to protect these species. And here's another one that's just happened, and it is probably the end of B.C.'s spotted owl. The only individuals that are going to be left uh on earth are going to be ones that are being reared in a captive facility on the coast and their survival success was not overly great during the release this spring so another story from british columbia had a there was a bad fire season here again there was a really bad fire season i think in 2017 2018 a couple back-to-back years The BC Wildlife Federation came out recently. Um, They're quite PO'd uh, at the government of BC accusing the provincial government of creating an unfair two-tiered system that excludes the public from wildfire affected areas, but it's not excluding commercial interests. So what was happening a few years ago was these wildfires would burn, uh, then they would be put out, they would be mapped, then wildlife managers were then quickly getting maps together, designating these areas as no access on any of the fire road structures or old roads that were opened up for, for fire access for the purpose of hunting. All motor vehicle access in the fire area was closed. However, logging companies were going in and, and starting to salvage log. In the spring, following the fires, the... Um, uh, unregulated, unlicensed commercial industry of mushroom pickers were swarming in on these wildfire areas, and there's Argos and quads and stuff burning all over through these burned areas, uh, willy nilly. Completely fine. The logging was fine. Um, trappers who have a commercial interest could could uh, access these areas as were um, anybody, mining companies, whatnot. But if you were a resident hunter, uh, you were excluded from these areas. So the BC wildlife Federation is choked about that. And, uh, they're basically, the executive director, Jesse Zeman has been on the other podcast quite a bit, uh, said in a recent news release, anyone looking to make a dollar has full access to the, to these regions, while ordinary British Columbians who want to hike, camp, hunt, or fish are barred from entry. These landscapes cannot properly recover if the provincial government grants exceptions while barring you and I from entry. Several BC First Nations have also implemented their own regional closures. uh, As one news story I read said, due to the ministry's dysfunctional system according to the press release uh, by First Nations. So, ah, kind of a shit show with these fires here in BC. Um, And I concur you know one hunters are probably not going to be going into the middle of a burned out area from a few months ago like hunting because most likely there's not going to be a whole lot there Um, but using traditional access through those areas or 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 whatnot to get to places beyond the fires is reasonable in my opinion especially if the road systems were there historically uh, and they just happened to be like fixed up a bit uh, you know still need to get back into some of the back places where people have hunted for years and, and it's not even hunting. It's just anybody that's trying to use a motor vehicle to access areas to hike camp are, are not allowed back there. But then, like I said, industries going in and these non-commercial licensed industries, like the mushroom pickers are just allowed to do whatever they want in these burn areas. Crazy. Uh, So last story out of British Columbia. So I've, I talked a couple of episodes ago about British Columbia has what's called the forestry watchdog. Uh, It's an external agency to government arms. Like they have their own mandate and staff um, that investigates called the forest practices board and they're called the forestry watchdog. So their mandate is to audit and investigate The forest and range sector of government in British Columbia and see whether or not they're actually following the laws set out for forestry and range management. Well, the BC Forest Practices Board just released a report a few days ago on a special investigation that came from a public complaint back in 2021, and they have concluded that a rancher and the ministry that oversees uh, ranching uh, and range protection in the province were doing a whole bunch of, I guess I'll say, uh, unauthorized or illegal activities uh, in protected areas. So. The government. uh, So this is what this is what I read. So the livestock grazing and government construction took place in the South Okanagan and White Lake grasslands protected areas. During the investigation, uh, the Forest Practices Board found that the rancher violated provincial laws regarding the use of these protected grasslands. And they also found that the government themselves did not give permission or follow their own procedures when they built 19 kilometers of barbed wire fence and two water diversions The investigators for the Forest Practices Board found that in the construction of the fence and the excavation of the water diversions, the government actually buried and destroyed grassland plants that the protected areas were actually put in place to protect. Interesting, Uh, when an an audit agency finds the government not following its own rules, God, you wonder if that ever changes anything. So, because uh, there always seems to be a couple of stories come up here and there about that. Uh, the big one I remember a couple of years ago was um, the fisher habitat in the central interior BC, uh, leading to sort of the, the improper management of fisher habitat, leading to uh, population declines of that fur bear. So, always something going on with. The forest practices board uh, pretty cool to find them if you're interested in what they're doing here in bc uh, you can find them on social media bc forest practices board they usually release their um, audit and investigation reports on social media there we go what a huge uh, bunch of stories uh, bc alberta saskatchewan ontario nova scotia uh, i think the only stories i didn't have were uh from the north northwest territories none of it or the yukon if you got any stories know anything that's going on please let me know uh, i love covering stories when people uh, give me a heads up on thing that's happening in their part of canada so uh, get a hold of me at mark at bloodOrigins.com uh, or find us on instagram or facebook and uh, send us a message say hey here's a story be cool to hear your take on it uh, and i love hearing your take on it as well um, so if there's anything you've heard in this podcast where you go hang on a second i live there i know a little bit about that let me know i love that because i will update folks on the next podcast to say here's a bit more information that i learned from someone that's close to this issue as opposed to reading news reporters' issues uh, or, or view of the stories that aren't close to the issue. So I value I value you. I value when you write me and and either correct me or give me a little bit more information on some of these stories. There you go. You're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we will see you in the next episode.